Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 48 Hours ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Need more true crime in your life? An Audible membership can solve that. Audible is the ultimate destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, you could choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Don't miss The Serial Killer's Apprentice by Katherine Ramsland and Tracy Allman. It follows the true story of how Houston's deadliest murder turned a kid into a killer in training. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 48 hours or text 48 hours to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 48 hours or text 48 hours to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days audible.com slash 48 hours. 48 hours listeners know to always expect the unexpected, including when home appliances break down. An American Home Shield warranty can restore your sense of security. It's simple. When a covered item in your home breaks, contact American Home Shield and their trusted and qualified pros will fix or replace it. Right now, you could take 20% off. Go to ahs.com slash 48 to save 20%. That's ahs.com slash 48 for 20% off any plan. For more details, see ahs.com slash contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions. New Jersey residents, the product being offered is a service contract and is separate and distinct from any product or service warranty, which may be provided by the home builder or manufacturer. American Home Shield. Don't worry, be warranty. There's nothing in this world that anybody can ever do to me that's going to be worse than what I've seen. I received a call from the Sheriff's Department that there had been a homicide. It was very devastating. There wasn't a lot of murders in Washington County. Everyone knew everyone. They all knew Michael. They all went to school with him. Everyone knew Rita. I was really close with my mom. She was always at my football games, my baseball games. She's always had the camcorder out. She was recording me. Come on, son. This murder was as brutal as they come. The first responders called this crime scene horrific. There's blood all over the room. Some sort of object was used to hit Rita at least once. Mike finds her body burning on the floor of her room. I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to call. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. My name is Michael Polite, and when I was 14 years old, I was arrested for the murder of my mother. Would either one of you ever, ever think, and be honest with me, that he might hurt your mother? No. I never thought he would hurt our mom, no. She was very close with Michael. You know, he was her baby. Tell me about December 4th, 1998. Do you remember that evening? Vividly. I was home. And then I see headlights coming down the 
the driveway, and it's my mom. And uh, she comes into the house, and she says, I love you, good night, and I'll see you in the morning. Is that the last thing your mom ever said That's to you? That's the last thing she ever said to me. Next thing I remember, I, I woke up, and I see a light haze in my room. I opened my door. I could see her feet. And she was on fire from the waist up. And I could hear it. What could you hear? Cracking of the fire. How soon did investigators focus on Michael? Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately. He is a suspect from the moment they arrive at the scene. They said this kid didn't act the way they expected. He wasn't emotional enough. You look like a pretty good suspect. You were a person who loved to set fires. You had had arguments with your mother. You were having trouble in school. But none of that suggests anything about murder. Were there any injuries on Michael, on your brother? None. Any blood found on him, on no. his clothing? No. And no weapon? No. Let me ask you a question. What 14-year-old kid could commit a crime that violent and that vicious and not leave any, any forensic evidence behind whatsoever? That's not possible. Michael was convicted of murder in the second degree. He was sentenced to life. Michael, did you kill your mom? No. And there's only one individual that I know that hates her that much to do that to her. This is where the Polite family home once stood on December 5th, 1998, the day Michael Polite says he woke up to find his mother's body lying on her bedroom floor on fire. What I seen was hatred and evil. He was 14 years old. The individual that did that to my mother hated her with everything inside of him. Rita Polite was just 40 when she died. There's a lot of pictures of us and mom. All these years later, Michael's annoying. older sisters, Crystal and Melanie, still have vivid memories. That's Crystal, that's mom, and that's me. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Rita? Her laugh. She's always Definitely. laughing, smiling. Michael and his sisters grew up in the tiny rural community of Hopewell, Missouri. It's about 70 miles southwest of St. Louis. We didn't lock our doors. We lived by all of our family. We rode bicycles and motorcycles. I was happy. Michael went by the nickname Bernie back then. His middle name is Bernard. It's short for Bernard. 
Their parents, Edward and Rita, got married as teens, and Crystal and Melanie say the couple had their struggles. He was very mentally abusive. He also cheated on her. A lot. But she loved him. Love, it outweighed any other feelings she ever had. Eventually, though, love wasn't enough. I witnessed violence between the two of them. There were allegations of domestic violence on both sides. The year before the murder, there was an incident where police were called. Michael told an officer that his dad pushed his mom to the floor and choked her. The couple ultimately divorced in the summer of 1998 after more than 20 years of marriage. The divorce decree cited Edward's infidelity. My dad would, he would try to pay me to come live with him. I, I wouldn't, I want to live with mom. Michael ended up having to split time between both parents. On December 4th, 1998, he was at his mom's. That night, she was out working at a local bar and Michael was home alone. Probably seven, eight or so, I get bored. I ride my bicycle down to the general store. It's there that Michael says he met up with his friend, 15-year-old Josh Sonsisi, who he invited to sleep over. The two hung out for hours until Michael's mom got home around midnight. I asked him, I was like, man, where do you want to sleep at? You can sleep here in the living room on a fold-out couch, or you can just sleep in, you know, in, in the floor of my room. He's like, I'll just crash on your floor. Michael says he slept through the night until just before 6.30 a.m., when he and Josh awoke and noticed smoke in the room. We ran out of the room. My mom's bedroom door is facing me, and I can see the glow, an orange glow in that area. He says he called out to his mom, but there was no answer. Michael, what are you feeling at this point? Panic. Fear. Michael says he went and grabbed a hose outside and then ran toward his mom's room. And what he saw, he'd never forget. I seen blood on her legs. And she was on fire from the waist up. And I turned the water hose on. I don't know how long I sat there. It could have been minutes, it could have been seconds, I don't know. Josh ran to get help, but it was too late. Crystal would soon get a call from her brother with the news. I just sat on my bed and I just kept saying, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. Because, you know, then you know it's real. Crystal picked Melanie up, and by the time they got to the scene, police cars and fire trucks were lining the driveway. Mike was on the front seat, passenger side of the police car, and we just ran up to the window, asked him what was, like, what happened. And he had soot on his face, and he had tear marks all down his face. And he said, I don't know, Mom's dead. You could smell the smoke. You could smell flesh. Tammy Nash worked for the Washington County Sheriff's Office back then and was one of the responding officers. It was clear that this was a murder. Rita had suffered blunt force trauma to the head and blood was visible on her bedroom walls, indicating a struggle had occurred. 
a fire marshal quickly concluded that an accelerant was used to set her on fire. What was your job at that point? What was your assignment? Together, the evidence. We was looking for anything that she could have been struck with. We never found a weapon. While Tammy processed the scene, Michael and Josh were taken away to the sheriff's office for questioning. A police report indicates that on the way, Michael asked an officer something that quickly put him under suspicion. He asked, what's going to happen to my mom's truck? Isn't that an odd thing to say after you just saw your mother on fire? I don't think so. When you lose someone, you want to hang on to things. To me, that's all it was, you know, and our mom loved that truck. But it did raise eyebrows. And at the sheriff's office, Michael was given a voice stress test. And then they told me that I failed. Investigators also took Michael's shoes so that an accelerant-sniffing dog could examine them. They said the dog alerted my shoes to uh, an accelerant. How would you describe the tone of the questioning after the dog's alerted on your shoes and after you failed this voice stress test? They wasn't questioning me no more. They were telling me that I did something. Michael and Josh both insisted they didn't know what happened to Rita, that they had stayed in Michael's room all night. But investigators told them they didn't believe them. The boys were questioned repeatedly. And two days after the murder, Josh gave a videotaped statement with an officer on each side and his mother present. That statement seemed to poke a hole in Michael's account. He said he woke up to a noise in the middle of the night. I heard a little thud, and I thought I heard like a, a woman's voice. Did Bernie wake up too, or did you no. see Bernie in the room at that time? No. Bernie wasn't in bed. I didn't see him. Could you have seen him if he was? And you let him Is that know? yes or no? Yes. Okay. So there's no doubt he wasn't in bed. Okay. And was he anywhere else in that bedroom? Shortly after Josh gave that statement on December 7, 1998, 14-year-old Michael Polite was arrested for his mother's murder. I always believed that I was going to be found innocent because I have anything to do with what happened to my mother. Oh, was I in for a rude awakening? A sense of safety is important to everyone, and that's why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe. It's an advanced security system that protects your entire home so you can rest easy. Simply Safe is completely customizable with advanced sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. You can have 24 7 professional home monitoring for less than $1 a day. So try Simply Safe for 60 days risk free. If you don't love it, you can return your system for a full refund. Plus, we're offering listeners 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Don't wait. Visit simplysafe.com slash 48 hours. That's simplysafe.com slash 48 hours. There's no safe like Simply Safe. 
If you're a fan of 48 Hours or true crime, looking to try on a case of your own, June's Journey is for you. A thrilling hidden object mystery game set against the backdrop of the 1920s, you play as June Parker, an amateur detective trying to unravel your sister's mysterious murder. As you dive into a world filled with twists and turns, trust no one. Every character could be hiding secrets. While you piece together the intricately woven plot, you'll collect crucial information in your photo album, turning suspicions into facts. And if you want help on the case, you can even join a detective club to collaborate or compete with fellow sleuths on hundreds of puzzles. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. He looks like a really happy kid. He was always really happy. When Melanie and Crystal learned that their 14-year-old brother had been arrested for their mother's murder, they say they couldn't believe it. How were they coming up with that conclusion? I just thought they were crazy. He didn't do it, no one even cleared. Chuck and Patsy Skiles are Michael's uncle and aunt. They live next door to where the crime took place. They also felt police had made a mistake. You know, we was the first ones to see him after it happened. He had no scratches, no nothing on him. He's always giving his mom a hug. He loved his mom. But while Michael's family believed in his innocence, the truth is, Michael was hardly the model child, something that even he admits. You failed seventh grade three times? Yeah, I was on my third year uh, because I became truant. I just wasn't going. Skipping school was one thing, but 10 months before the murder, things got so bad that Michael was hospitalized for behavioral issues after he threatened to kill his mother and himself. For whatever reason, I told her that I would put her six feet under just like her mom and dad. Did you, you know, mean that, Michael? No, I didn't. And it's the biggest regret of my life. Melanie and Crystal blame Michael's misbehavior on their parents' divorce. Our dad would kind of put him in the middle. Michael was clearly an angry, troubled teenager. Yeah, I think he was mad at our dad, for sure. Was he mad at your mom as well? No, I think, I mean, I know they didn't always get along perfectly. Um, I don't think any parent and child does. Three years pass with Michael in custody awaiting trial. And then the prosecution came to him with a deal plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, and he'd spend a maximum of 15 years in prison. I rejected it. You didn't think about it? Nope. Why not? Because I didn't murder my mother. In January 2002, Michael Polite, then 17 years old, went on trial. His life was on the line. The prosecutors and defense attorney who tried the case didn't respond to our calls. But Josh Hedgecourt, the current prosecutor of Washington County, where the murder took place, was willing to talk about the case. What was the most important evidence? The scientific evidence, and that would start with the shoes that he was wearing at the sheriff's office. Not only had a dog detected an accelerant on Michael's shoes, According to the prosecution, later testing also confirmed the presence of gasoline on them. And there was testimony that an accelerant had been used to burn Rita's body. And so all of these components together, I think, solidified that he must have set the fire. 
But Michael had told police that gasoline found on his shoes meant nothing and that he and his friends would often set fires for fun. But we all did that. It was in the, it was in the country. In fact, Michael told police that just hours before the murder, he and his friend Josh used gasoline to set a fire on the railroad tracks near his house before Rita got home. It does show the persistence of fire. But the prosecution used that admission as another piece of evidence against Michael. See the heavy charring in it. They argued the burn pattern on the tracks match the burn pattern on Rita. See the outlets showing nothing electrical that could have caused the fire. Linda Dickerson Bell and Jonathan Peterson were jurors on the case. I'm like, it's, it's not looking good for him. What they were telling us was that Michael had a problem with burning and that he was the only person that could have done this. The jurors never heard about Michael's problems at school and that threat to his mother. But a witness testified about a disagreement that Michael had with his mother weeks before the murder. It was over money, and he sat flicking a lighter afterwards. It happened, but not in the way that the state portrayed it. I was flicking the wheel on the lighter. That's that. You weren't threatening your mother with that? No. And there was something even more damaging. The prosecution claimed that Michael had actually confessed to the crime during a suicide attempt at a juvenile detention center exactly one month after the murder. Three witnesses who worked there wrote in reports that Michael said, I haven't cared since I killed my mom. But Michael says that's not what he said. When they asked you why you were trying to kill yourself, you say you said what? I haven't cared since I killed my mom. It's the difference of one word, but that one word carried a lot of weight and the jury would never hear from Michael because when it was the defense's turn, he didn't take the stand. Today's date is the 7th day of December, 1998. And leaving the jury with even more unanswered questions was the fact that they were told that Josh, the other boy in the house that night, had been granted immunity. I kept waiting, thinking, okay, well, if he's been given immunity, then he's got to have something to offer. But the jury never saw or heard from Josh at all. He wasn't called to the stand, and they were never shown his videotaped statement. Michael's sisters also weren't called. I never really heard anybody in his defense say Michael didn't do this. Instead, the defense hinged its case on the lack of direct evidence. No murder weapon had been found. And despite the violence of the attack, Michael had no injuries and no blood on his clothing. After three days of testimony, the case went to the jury. To hold someone's life in your hand, have you ever done that? (laughs) It's not a pleasant thing to do. I wanted to get it right. But Linda and Jonathan say they were left with so many questions, too many questions, and they felt pressured by other members of the jury. I I think everybody finally just got to me and was just like, you know, we're ready to go home. And then I was like, yeah, but you're ready to go home and this kid's ready to go to prison. After more than four hours, the jury filed into the courtroom with their verdict, guilty of second-degree murder. I wept. Why? 
was wrong. Michael was sentenced to life in prison. It was, um, it was, it was unbelievable. It was, I, I never thought it would happen. Michael would spend years in a Missouri prison before a new team of lawyers would take his case and make it their mission to turn it around. The state essentially never really had any case against this kid, but the case that they even did have back at trial has been indisputably proven false. What do you make of the evidence used to convict Michael? Chat now with the 48 Hours team on Facebook and Twitter. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. After Michael Polite was convicted and sentenced to life at the age of 18, he was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary, once called the bloodiest 47 acres in America. Being so young, I was a target. I got in a fight my first day there. Dudes were trying to rape me. Michael says he became desperate for some sense of safety. You became a skinhead? Yeah, I joined a gang. That's where you got the tattoos? Yeah. It was something that I felt like I needed to do to survive. It's not the way that I feel. Um, it's not the way that mom raised me. I just didn't fit in. Michael says he longed to prove his innocence and get out of prison. He needed to hire a lawyer. So he says he asked his dad for help. Did he? Nope. So how did you keep up any hope at all? I didn't for a few years. I was a heroin addict. Um, anytime I left my cell, I was looking for drugs. I was just self-medicating. That's the way things were until Michael finally found something that gave him hope. Five years after his conviction, he wrote a letter to the Midwest Innocence Project, and they agreed to take his case. The organization worked on it for years, and eventually attorneys Trisha Bushnell, Megan Crane, and Mark Emerson became involved. Mike was convicted because he was a kid, pure and simple. They said he wasn't emotional enough. Trauma doesn't look like what people think it should look like. Trisha, Megan, and Mark picked apart the case against Michael. They say it was based on bad science. Starting with the prosecution's claim that an accelerant was used to set the fire that killed Rita. When the fire investigator came to the scene, they immediately de determined it was a fuel-fed fire based on just visual patterns. 
uh, just based on looking at the scene, which at the time violated gold standards of fire investigation. There has to be lab testing. Control sample taken there. And lab testing was done on carpet samples from the crime scene. No accelerant was detected. The prosecution explained that away by saying it could have burned up. But defense attorney Megan Crane says that suggestion isn't reasonable. There's no scientific basis for that being possible. Do you believe that the jury believed that, in fact, there was an accelerant used to set Rita on fire? Uh, Absolutely. The main case against Michael was that it was a gasoline fire. And in order to attempt to tie Mike to the crime, the only physical evidence was the gasoline that the state alleged was on his shoes. But Michael's new lawyers say that Michael's shoes didn't have gasoline on them either. Another footprint found. They say a chemical used in the shoe manufacturing process was wrongly identified as gasoline at trial. And even the Missouri State Crime Lab agrees. In this 2020 letter, officials say it is now known that solvents found in footwear adhesives have similarities to gasoline but that in the late 1990s, this knowledge was not widely known. Could the dogs have been alerting to the chemicals used in the shoes? Absolutely. The jurors cared about the gas on the shoes. They asked to see the shoes. It was the nail in the coffin. But what about Michael's alleged confession at the juvenile detention center? Witnesses wrote that they heard him say, I haven't cared since... I killed my mom. But Michael insists he said, I haven't cared since they killed my mom. In the same way we talk about tunnel vision, people can hear what they want to hear. We're talking about one word in a room where there's lots of activity happening. They have a a kid in the detention center that they believe has probably committed this crime, right? And so that's their view of him. There is one big question that remains. What about Josh Sonsisi? Remember, the jury was told he got immunity. And there was that videotaped statement where he told police that he woke up in the middle of the night and Michael wasn't there. So there's no doubt he wasn't in bed. Okay. And was he anywhere else in that bedroom? No. Now, many years after the crime, Josh is speaking publicly for the first time about what he says really happened that night. I spent the majority of my life just trying to forget about it. I've done pretty good just moving on with it. But I mean, it's still, it's always there, you know. Josh Sansusi is now 39 years old. He says he's never been quite the same since he woke up from that sleepover at Michael's at the age of 15 and found himself in the middle of a murder investigation. He says he was questioned by police repeatedly for hours at a time. Every time I tell him something, they would be like, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. I remember telling my mom, I said, they keep saying 
that I'm lying. I said, I don't even know if I'm telling the truth anymore. But the truth, Josh says, is that nothing out of the ordinary happened on that night in question. It was just like a normal night. I couldn't sleep very good that night. I was kind of waking up. I woke up one time. But what about that videotape statement where Josh told police that he woke up in the middle of the night and Michael wasn't there? So there's no doubt he wasn't in bed. Okay. And was he anywhere else in that bedroom? No. I don't remember ever saying that. And I feel like if I said that, then it was maybe at a weak point or something. Michael's attorneys say they've seen this all too often in interrogations. What we see in Josh's interrogation is the result of hours and hours of interrogation. And every other time, he has never, ever said that that was what happened. In a deposition right before Michael went on trial, Josh said that he never sat up from where he was sleeping on the floor and that it's not that I did not see him in his bed, it's I couldn't see him in his bed. There's no way I could see anything that's on top of the bed. So why did Josh take that immunity deal? I just wanted it because I knew they was going to try to pin it on me or Bernie. I was like, well, if they give me immunity, then... Maybe I don't have anything to worry about, you know. Michael's lawyers say the prosecution was likely trying to get Josh to flip on Michael. And the fact they didn't even put Josh on the stand says it all. They didn't call him because it wasn't going to go well for them. He had nothing helpful to say for the state. Why didn't the defense call Josh? That's a great question, Aaron. And there's a lot of great questions about what the defense didn't do and who they didn't call. Michael's trial attorney was a public defender back then. In a court affidavit, he admits that Michael's case was the first homicide case that he had tried on his own, and that today he would handle his representation of Michael differently. Michael's new legal team was committed to getting him out of prison. They filed court documents suggesting an alternative suspect, Michael's father, Edward Polite. I believe he is responsible for what happened to the mother. If that's true, that means Michael's own father stood by and let his son take the fall for a murder that he was behind. Michael's sisters say their father was furious over the financial terms of the divorce. A judge had finalized them just four days before the murder. She got half of his retirement. Maintenance. Um, maintenance, child, child support. support. He actually alimony and the one thing that I remember about growing up with our dad is you don't mess with his money. You just don't do it. He had an outburst in the court. But he said you'll never live to see a dime of that money. Police did interview Edward Polite after the murder. He had an alibi. He was home more than 80 miles away at the time of the murder. But Michael's defense team says investigators didn't look hard enough. They didn't at all investigate the possibility that perhaps Ed did this with someone else. And Michael says he believes his dad did arrange the murder and had help. I think he hired Johnny to murder my mother. Johnny is Johnny Polite, Edward's cousin. Michael's legal team identified witnesses who placed Johnny near the crime scene on the morning of the murder, just as first responders were arriving. Well, I'd heard sirens, and uh, 
As I'm coming up the road and I'm approaching the railroad tracks, Johnny Polite was walking down the railroad tracks. Larry Lee is one of those witnesses. He's known Johnny for years. As he's walking up to my truck, he asked me if I heard about Rita. He said somebody killed her. And I'm like, do what? About a week later, Larry's wife, Carolyn, says Johnny came to their door. And it was like 6 o'clock in the morning. He said, I need to know what you know about Rita's death. He said, me and Edward are doing our own investigation, and we heard you were up at the store talking about it. And I said, Johnny, I don't know nothing. No, we need to know what you know, he said. And I said, you know, I think it's time for you to go. Were you scared? A little bit. Did the two of you talk to investigators about this? No. We think back now, and we wish we would have. And I ain't saying he had anything to do with anything either. I, I don't know. But, you know. Another man places Johnny Polite's truck near the same spot that Larry Lee says he ran into Johnny on the morning of the murder. In an affidavit filed by Michael's team, the man says he saw the truck just as emergency vehicles were coming down the road. Former investigator Tammy Nash says she doesn't remember hearing that Johnny Polite had been seen that morning, but she does recall something that happened in the days after the murder, once the crime scene had been released. Somebody came in to the sheriff's department and said that they had found a tire iron or tire tool or something in the closet. Whose closet? Michael's closet. Police records show the person who found that tire tool was Johnny Polite. Could you have missed that no. in your first search? No. Are you absolutely I sure? I am positive. I did not miss that. If it wasn't there when you searched, what does that mean? That somebody placed it there. Tammy went and retrieved the tire tool from Michael's closet. It was later ruled out as the murder weapon. Do you believe that tire iron was put in your closet to set you up? I do. Johnny and Edward Polite didn't respond to our request for an interview. Neither has been charged in the case. It's been years since Michael and his sisters have spoken to their father, but they say they did ask him whether he had anything to do with their mother's murder, and he denied it. It's not our, our job and it's not our focus to say who, who did commit this crime, but what we do know is it was not Michael Polite. And while Michael's lawyers were trying to prove that, the case would take a turn. Best day in the world. I never thought this day would come. It's amazing. Take an in-depth look at the case at 48hours.com. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's hard. It's real hard here in Missouri to get these convictions overturned. It's a battle. I don't know why they don't want to have a hearing. Michael's legal team was shut down by appeals courts at every turn. It is a constant fight with, you know, Goliath, really, is what it feels like. Despite the letdowns, Michael and his sisters kept up hope that one day he would be freed. And in 2021, there was an unexpected development. A bill passed in Missouri giving juvenile offenders convicted of serious crimes a second chance. It gave me an immediate parole hearing. Michael went before the parole board asking for his release. I told him I was innocent, and I told him this is why I'm innocent, and this is why you should believe I'm innocent. It worked. On April 22, 2022, Melanie and Crystal brought friends and family and a change of clothes to the Jefferson City Correctional Center. It was a really great day. It was a dream come true, really. On that day, Michael Polite walked out of prison. I love you. I love you. Incarcerated at just 14 years old. Oh, man, I love you guys, man. He was now 38. Where's my lawyers? <laughs> it was overwhelming to see all the love. All the nights sitting in my cell wondering what it would be like to be out here and have this moment and, and have it finally come through. It's, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's finally here. I'm free. How you doing? Can I have a hug? Michael says he felt his mom's presence when a bird flew by overhead. Hey, Mom. She's always in my thoughts. She's always in my mind. And everything I do and everything that I process through the day is guided by her. Michael left prison that day doing one of the things he enjoyed most before he went in. We're going to take a bike ride from the parking lot to the railroad tracks. You ready to go, man? I'm ready. I'm leaving here the same way that I came in here, riding a bicycle. Justice for Rita. Let's go. Let's go, man. <laughs> <laughs> Felt good. It was the best bike ride in the world. Welcome home, Mike. This is it. Welcome home. <laughs> Following his release, Michael moved in with his sister, Melanie. You ready? Drum roll. Hey, He started getting those reminders of prison, his tattoos, covered up with this new art. He also found job as a carpenter and got his driver's license. You're now out. Is that enough? No, it ain't enough. Because as you sit right now, you are a convicted felon on parole. Yep. You have a criminal record that says you killed your mother. Yep. Michael wants to clear his name, and it just might happen 
because Josh Hedgecourth, the current prosecutor in the county where the murder took place, has filed a motion asking for Michael's conviction to be overturned. To me, it all always comes back to the science. Hedgecourt agrees with Michael's attorneys that the scientific evidence used to convict Michael is problematic. So I don't believe that Michael received a fair trial. I can't say that the prosecutor at the time knew what he was putting on was false. It just shouldn't have been presented. Could you retry Michael Polite for the murder of his mother based on the evidence you have today? On the evidence I have today, I don't believe I would file this case. But while the local prosecutor believes Michael's conviction should be thrown out, another public official, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, is fighting it. In every exoneration of Missouri, the attorney general fights it because they say we have to respect, honor, and protect the verdict of these jurors. Well, that goes out the window when the jurors themselves want this verdict overturned. In sworn affidavits, five jurors have questioned whether Michael got a fair trial including Jonathan Peterson and Linda Dickerson-Bell. I do not believe that Michael Polite killed his mother, but I don't know how to fix it. The Attorney General's office didn't reply to our request for comment, but in a court filing, they say that Michael cannot meet the standard for actual innocence. And the AG has argued that the evidence against Johnny and Edward Polite would have been inadmissible at trial. There you go. Michael hopes that a judge will hear the case and decide to overturn his conviction. But in the meantime, Prosecutor Josh Hedgecourt has revealed to us that the local sheriff's department has reopened the investigation into Rita's murder. We want to do the right thing. If someone else did this, we want to know that. Even if it's new evidence that it was Michael. Neither Hedgecourt nor the local sheriff would comment on the specifics of the investigation, including whether Johnny Polite or Edward Polite are persons of interest. I feel bad for Bernie and his family. I mean, everything they had to go through. And Bernie lost his whole childhood. Josh Sansasi hasn't seen Michael Polite since they were kids, but they hope to one day reunite. The night of that sleepover and its aftermath has haunted Josh all these years. What would you say to him? I'm sorry. And that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. In Potosi, Missouri, not far from where the murder took place, Rita's truck has sat all these years. It's going to need new tires. So much smaller than I remember. Her family says they held on to it because it's one of the only things they have left of her. That's her truck. You know, it's a part of her. That, that belongs to her. They hope to fix it up and get it running again. We're gonna get justice for her. I believe that one day. We're gonna we're gonna get justice for Rita. I saw the whole crime scene like then and there as a 12-year-old kid. And we wanted, we wanted to kill our mom. Was she killed by someone they trusted? You can't lose your mom no worse than we lost our mom. 
So I've been carrying the killer's picture in my house this whole time and never had a clue. Saturday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Join me, 48 Hours correspondent Erin Moriarty, on my podcast, My Life of Crime, as I take on true crime investigations like no other. This season, I'm looking into the secrets within families, cutting straight to the evidence and talking to the people directly involved. Enjoy My Life of Crime on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.